Truth Espresso, episode 265. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is your host for Truth Espresso, Daniel Minnick, once again, coming at you with another exciting, fun-filled episode. Well, I guess if the topic of whether or not Jesus taught socialism is fun and exciting for you, but this is going to be episode 9 part nine in my series answering the question was jesus a socialist now most of these episodes i did while driving to work but i figured this would be a good topic to discuss on monday's episode and one would think that i would have exhausted the passages of scripture that can be used or abused to teach the idea that Jesus was a socialist, a liberal revolutionary, basically a hippie with a gun <laughs> in history who wanted to overthrow and transform society. But we would be wrong. There's plenty of other verses. And so we are now at part nine. And for part nine, I want to get into some passages in Luke chapter 14 that are often used as proof texts for socialist ideas. And then we're going to look at Luke 14. We're going to walk through it and look at those passages in context and see whether or not these passages really teach socialism. So, a verse, as I have been researching, that has been repeated quite often. It's almost like a mantra from socialists who would claim to be Christians is Luke 14, verse 33. Sometimes we see this verse repeated over and over again. And it says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Well, there you go. I mean, how could this not be teaching socialism? Because Jesus is saying that a requirement for someone to be his disciple, which one should assume, right, that Jesus desires everyone in the whole world to be his disciple. So therefore, this is a blanket command from Jesus to every single person in the world to be his disciple. And how do you do that? You have to forsake everything that you have. You have to give up everything. So, this is Jesus clearly teaching against the idea of property rights, right? And there's no shortage of Christian socialist articles and websites that will make liberal use of this verse. And so, scouring the internet, I find a certain Mike Rivage Sewell's blog and he has an entry entitled, Bernie reminds us that Christianity is communism and Jesus was a communist! Exclamation point. 
In that article, Mike says, quote, they, referring to the disciples in the early church, they have everything to do with following Jesus, who himself was a communist. He's the one who said, quote, every one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 3, there's a typo there, it should be verse 33. And Mike Rivesh Sewell at the bottom of his blog says that he's an emeritus professor of peace and social justice studies, a liberation theologian, activist, former RC priest or Roman Catholic priest. So we kind of get an idea of the thinking of this Mike Rivage Sewell here in his blog. And of course, he's in defense of communism and proving that Bernie Sanders is virtually Jesus reincarnated. <laughs> Quotes Luke 14.33. Now I move on to Marxists.org. And in the archives there, there's an article, which I'll put a link to the show notes. In an article, it says, quote, Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus requires of his disciples that each give everything that he owns. Unquote. And then it quotes, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 33. So the self-proclaimed Marxists who try to find Marxism in the Bible and early church history, of course, will quote this verse to prove communism and socialism. And now finally, from RenewedHeartMinistries.com in May of 2018, there is a post entitled Political Jesus, and it has a comic drawing of Jesus on the cross, and the mobsters below are holding signs. And of course, this is to reflect the way people were antagonizing Jesus on the cross. Like, he saved others, he cannot save himself. If you be Christ, come down from the cross people sneering at him and stuff like that. But what does this leftist show that the mob were saying to Jesus on the cross? Well, they're all holding signs and the signs say, God hates you. Another says, homosexuality is sin. Another says, Muslim terrorists are not welcome here. Another says, you are going to hell. Another says, all lives matter. Of course, you know, you'd wonder, like, what's wrong with that? But we clearly know the context because it's a response to Black Lives Matter. Then All Lives Matter is the privilege or right-wing message. The next sign says, no men in girls' bathrooms. <laughs> and finally, the, the last sign says, abortion is murder. So all these signs that clearly show the left's depiction of right-wing or conservative MAGA whatever messages there, including things like, okay, so wouldn't someone have a legitimate concern about men in girls' bathrooms? You know, there's no answer for that. It's just hate. <laughs> like there's nothing bad could ever happen from that, right? And then abortion is murder. Well, you'd think the most marginalized and most oppressed and most innocent among us, legally speaking, are going to be the 
unborn the babies in the womb who get brutally murdered in the process of abortion. But of course, yep, since they can't see them, then they don't exist as humans. Now, yes, all of these angry people holding these political signs at the bottom of the comic, and then it has Jesus saying, of course, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. (laughs) And from this post, it says, We can see Jesus' politics in the way he related to those labeled sinners, too. As we have discussed, the label of sinner was not used universally, as it is in many sectors of Christianity today. In Jesus' time, it was a label used to religiously define and therefore politically marginalize some individuals or groups. Oh, you mean like tax collectors? Like wait a minute, those are sinners, huh? But it seems like socialism requires tax collectors, right? Continuing on, it says, yet these sinners, in quotes, were the people who heard Jesus' message as good news and responded positively. This Herb Montgomery who created this post isn't going to get into any of the details of where Jesus actually addressed real sin He's only going to take it out of context to make sinners just a political label, and there's really no such thing as a sinner other than those who oppress marginalized groups. And they respond positively. Well, in what way are they responding positively? Responding to what message? Of course, we're not going to see. He continues to say, quote, Jesus was excluded and labeled as a sinner himself, too, for standing in solidarity with them. He stood in solidarity with them? Um, Do tell. (laughs) So now uh, Mr. Montgomery says, or he quotes Luke 15, 1 through 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How this label of sinners was used and Jesus' solidarity with those being labeled and marginalized will be our topic next week. For now, note that Jesus called his followers to welcome and center the very ones those in power had influenced his society to push to the edges and undersides of their society. And then he also quotes Luke 14, 13, But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And this is another passage that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 14. So, Mr. Montgomery continues, Jesus was a genuine threat to the social, political, and economic order of his day. He was calling for his society to be turned upside down, unquote. So, here we go with socialist revolutionary thinking. Now, I already addressed that in the first episode of this series, that Jesus was not a political revolutionary. We saw plenty of verses, such as what he told to Pilate, that his kingdom is not of this world, else his servants would be fighting. 
Um, he never intended during his earthly ministry and with any of his messages for people to overthrow the powers that be. In fact, when his disciples thought that he was in danger and wanted to defend them, he allowed them to take up a few swords and said it was enough. When Peter tried to defend Jesus and cut off Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest, Jesus healed him and he told Peter to put down your sword. Yeah, Jesus was not overthrowing society here. And of course, you know, we see certain buzzwords such as solidarity. He mentioned solidarity several times. This is another socialist buzzword. But all Mr. Montgomery does here is to claim that sinners is just a label that the powers, of course, we have the word power, that's another buzzword, those in power used to marginalize people and that Jesus stood in solidarity with them. Well, maybe we should look at some context there because Mr. Montgomery mentioned Luke 15, 1 through 2 about Jesus eating with the publicans and sinners. But what was Jesus' point with what he would teach in that chapter? How he would respond in understanding what his point was with eating with publicans and sinners. Because we see in Luke 15, verse 10, after the parable of the lost coin, which we mentioned in a previous episode and explained that, the point is repentance, lost, found, And in verse 10, Jesus says, Likewise, I say unto you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. So, Jesus was not dismissing the fact that what even the religious leaders would refer to as sinners indeed were committing sins. But Jesus recognized that they needed repentance and that he was making a way for them to repent. So he criticized both the religious leaders for not allowing people to repent and showing how they're guilty of sins themselves, but also the ones who were sinners were indeed sinners in need of repentance. And Jesus said, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And of course, the socialists just don't want to accept that because in their understanding, so-called marginalized groups cannot be sinners in any sense of the word because if you're somehow marginalized or disadvantaged or if you have less power than someone else, the only sin is what those in power can somehow do to those who have less power. It's all about a battle of power and never about any kind of intrinsic act that anyone can commit, no matter their social status, that is wrong. Only those in power can actually commit sin. And any apparent sins from so-called marginalized people is always just an understandable reaction or even a revolutionary attempt to overthrow power. And so stealing, murder, That's only a sin if you do so under the auspices of wielding or maintaining your power over someone else. 
Hey there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is Daniel Minnick, the host of the Truth Espresso podcast on the Christian podcast community. And I want you to check out Voice of Reason Radio with Chris Honholtz and Richard Story. Chris and Rich are two guys with big hearts who will bring you a show every week that is sure to be challenging, encouraging, and biblical. Voice of Reason Radio with Chris Honholtz and Richard Story is part of the Christian podcast community. Check them out at slavetotheking.com. That's slavetotheking.com. And tell them Truth Espresso sent you. Now, I've got to move on to that because I've got to talk about verses in Luke chapter 14. So, another passage in Luke chapter 14 is verses 12 through 14, where it says, Then said he also to him, this is referring to what Jesus said, Then said he, Jesus, also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, nor thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. So, socialists will also use that passage to show that money or wealth should always and only be to take care of poor people so that no one with wealth can ever in any way enjoy it. But if there's wealth, Jesus is basically saying, you got to get rid of your wealth. You've got to just use it to take care of poor people. So no one really truly enjoys wealth. Everyone who He's basically saying, right, that, you know, make sure everyone can eat. Now, let's look at the context of these passages. Do we have to give up? Do we have to give away everything to be a disciple of Jesus? Can we ever have a party in any way where we're not opening it up to the public and inviting the poor, the maimed, the blind, and so on? Is that what Jesus is saying? The context of this chapter, Luke chapter 14, starts with the fact that Jesus was eating bread in the house of a chief Pharisee, and it seems that he may have been invited for the Pharisees to kind of test him to see if he might violate a Sabbath rule. So the reason that he was invited there by a Pharisee was possibly a plot to catch him in an act that they can accuse him, such as violating the Sabbath. They had a lot of Sabbath laws that were very strict. And so even if they knew that Jesus didn't violate the spirit of the law, if he ran afoul of some kind of regulation, then they can accuse him and get him in trouble because they wanted to get rid of him and his influence. Since this was on the Sabbath day, the meal would have followed certain Sabbath rules such that certain of the food preparation would have been done before dusk the previous evening when the Sabbath would begin at dusk on the Friday evening and would end at dusk Saturday evening. Likewise, there just so happened to be someone with an incurable disease called the dropsy. 
The dropsy involves some part or the whole of the body swelling with excess water. And it seems likely this person was invited there to test Jesus. Because remember, Jesus was telling the host in the verses we looked at, invite disadvantaged people to your feast. Well, here it seems that there was one, but Jesus seemed to catch on that there might have been a purpose for inviting this person as bait for Jesus to do a miracle so they can catch him in the act of violating the Sabbath. Now, Jesus already knew what their game was, so he preempted them by asking the Pharisees if it were wrong to heal on the Sabbath. After no one asked him, he healed the man, and then he knew that they were likely to point fingers after that, so then Jesus asked a further question before any accusations could be raised. He asked, If your ox or donkey fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, you would certainly put in the good effort to pull the ox out. And likewise, if you saw someone else in that situation, you would put in the good effort to help him. Clearly, God didn't intend the Sabbath to be so strict that Israel had to let their own animals die and lose future productivity if an accident happened on the Sabbath. You know, if it's lawful to do that kind of good labor on the Sabbath, surely it would be lawful for Jesus to use supernatural power to heal someone on the Sabbath, you know, and not break a sweat in the process. So these Pharisees were looking to accuse him of doing work on the Sabbath, even if it just involved Jesus telling the person, be healed, because they would figure that him healing them by supernatural power is work somehow, and then that would violate the Sabbath. But since it would require actual physical labor to pull an ox out of a pit on the Sabbath, then surely there could be nothing wrong with merely speaking words and using supernatural power that one possesses to do good, like heal someone on the Sabbath. So, Now that Jesus seized on the authority to teach by healing someone and putting accusers in their place, even before they can accuse him, he proceeded to address the guests. He told them, don't try to find the most prestigious places to sit, lest you get publicly humiliated when a higher ranking guest has to tell you to step down. Rather, you should start with the lowest place. It's far more honorable when someone recognizes your rank and encourages you to sit higher. So, this might sound like Jesus is starting a series of socialistic messages, but notice in Jesus' words, he says, don't try to sit higher than you ought to because it might be embarrassing when you're told to move down, but rather look for the lowest place to sit, and then it's more honorable if someone tells you, hey, aren't you in a higher rank? You can move up. Notice that Jesus didn't condemn ranks. He simply advised those of all ranks to act humbly. And after saying this next, Jesus had advice for the wealthy host. He said, 
When you prepare a feast, don't call your relatives and wealthy friends because of what they can do in return, but call the poor and the handicapped who can't repay you. Your repayment will be a reward at the resurrection. So Jesus wasn't saying that rich people can't have rich friends and enjoy wealth sometimes. You know, because socialists are going to look at this because Jesus said, don't invite the wealthy, the friends, the family, but invite the poor, the lame. And they're going to look at those words woodenly, literally in such a way that rich people, you shouldn't be invited to feasts at all until you learn that you need to give up all your wealth and become a poor person. Then you can eat. (laughs) Then you can be invited to feasts. But Jesus was, in effect, not saying you can't ever, say, have a birthday party with your own family members if you happen to be wealthy, or that you have to have your birthday parties open to the public and look for and invite people from the alleyways to come to your birthday party. Jesus wasn't saying not this, but this. He was saying, not only, but also. So when he's saying, don't do this, but do this, he's saying, don't only do this, but also greatly consider this. He was saying, don't neglect the poor and disadvantage, even though doing so requires humility on your part. Think of lavish dinner events for dignitaries and wealthy patrons that are also fundraisers. You know, I uh, one time, for example, in 2007, I was in Florida and there just happened to be a scheduled time where candidate Mitt Romney came for a fundraising dinner. And so my brother and I actually went to that and we paid for the dinner. We paid to participate in the dinner. We also paid even a little bit more to have a kind of a meet and greet. So before the dinner started, we actually got to meet Mitt Romney, who was the governor at the time and was a presidential candidate. He ended up becoming the nominee. So, yeah, it was kind of cool to have talked to someone who was the Republican nominee for president at the time. But how did we do that? We actually had to cough up some money for that privilege. So, yeah, for example, Jesus is talking about that kind of thing. You know, don't only put on lavish events and fancy events for people who can repay you. If that's all a wealthy person does, he doesn't have a heart for the kingdom of God. A wealthy person should also use his money to host general feasts of charity to feed poor and disadvantaged people. These feasts don't necessarily have to focus on carefully crafted and stylized dishes and hors d'oeuvres. Money can even go further. The expense can go a long way to focus on a hearty quantity rather than scrupulous quality and decorum. Jesus was in no way commanding that all meals or celebrations had to be open to the public. Remember, Jesus was not saying, not this, but this. He was saying, not only, but also.
Wealth should not only be used to perpetuate wealth. Those who have should consider using a good portion of their wealth to help the poor, but that doesn't mean no one can enjoy wealth if they're wealthy in any way at any time. Notice also that Jesus distinguished the guests from the host. Notice that their admonitions were different. He told the guests how they should act. He also told the host what he should do with his wealth. However, the lesson had the similarity, voluntary humility for the sake of the kingdom of God. But ultimately, in context, what was Jesus leading up to? It doesn't say explicitly, but there is a lot of consensus among many commentators about what Jesus would say after one of the socialist passages about inviting the poor and maimed to the feasts. So Luke 14 verses 15 through 24 is what Jesus said next. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he, Jesus, unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, or invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in thither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of these men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. So what's interesting about what Jesus then said when he talked about inviting poor and maimed, the first people who were invited to the supper didn't want to come. They came up with every excuse possible. So then how could this possibly be a lesson on political economics? and social policy and what the government should do. One could say that Jesus was criticizing the wealthy religious leaders that they had become too entrenched and comfortable in their lot in society and they didn't regard the poor and downtrodden. So yes, there's no problem with being wealthy as long as you don't forsake the poor and downtrodden. The Jews, the religious leaders here, especially, also thought lowly of Gentiles. They thought that the Gentiles were basically created to be fodder for God's fiery wrath. They would have excuses for not following Jesus if it would cost them. Now, let me look at a few commentaries on this passage. 
particularly the third admonition in the example of the Lord telling the servant to go out in the highways and byways, the hedges outside the city and compel them to come in. Albert Barnes's commentary says, quote, The great point in this parable was that God would call in the Gentiles after the Jews had rejected the gospel. This should be kept always in view in interpreting all the parts of the parable, unquote. The pulpit commentary says, quote, The third series of invitations is not addressed to inhabitants of a city. No walls hem in these far-scattered dwellers among the highways and hedges of the world. This time, the master of the house asks to his great banquet those who live in the isles of the Gentiles, unquote. The Bridgeway Bible commentary says, quote, Consequently, the religiously respectable people were left out of the kingdom, but outcasts such as beggars, tax collectors, and prostitutes were included. Even Gentiles from far-off places accepted the invitation that the Jews refused." Now, Got Questions is a pretty good resource for answering a lot of Bible questions, and Got Questions, in its commentary on the parable of the great banquet, says, quote, The fact that the master in the parable sends the servant far afield to persuade everyone to come indicates that the offer of salvation would be extended to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth, unquote. So that's really the context of what Jesus is talking about, inviting poor and lame and maimed, not as some kind of social policy or political policy, but as an illustration of the invitation of the gospel such that one can have a personal, individual relationship with Jesus And remember, this is Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 15 is where Jesus talks about where he was eating with tax collectors and sinners and being accused of doing something wrong. But yet Jesus said that there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. We can never forget that context that those who were considered marginalized by the religious leaders there Not only did Jesus accuse the religious leaders of wrong, but he was eating with the tax collectors and sinners to get them to repent. Now, back to the context of the great feast. Another example from Jesus of this that we could see that he's talking about Gentiles being invited to participate in the kingdom of God is that in Matthew 8 verses 11 through 12. And Jesus said there, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that seems like a very strange statement there, but basically he's saying that the kingdom of God is offered to the nation of Israel writ large, but that many of them would reject. There'd be a remnant, we see 
the little flock, as he refers to his disciples, and then they would make a lot of converts, but there would be unbelievers who'd be broken off, the branches broken off. As we see in Romans chapter 11, we also see that Gentiles, as a wild olive shooter, grafted in. So many come from the east and west, and they'll be eating in the kingdom. But the children of the kingdom now, he's not saying all of them. He's just saying those who are natural-born citizens who think that just because they're that way, that they have a right, they will be cut out, and there will be suffering. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Christianpodcastcommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. So the parable of the Great Feast is not a socialist statement. It's about inviting all classes of people and so that the Jews of the time would know that the Gentiles would be able to come for salvation. This is not a socialist proof text. Now let's look at the oft-quoted verse that we began with Luke chapter 14, verse 33, where Jesus said, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. We need to address that one that is the favorite text among many Christian socialists. So, a few points on that to observe. Jesus is not prescribing a centralized plan or a prescription for society. In fact, the statement here is intended to be countercultural. Because what did Jesus tell his disciples in the Olivet Discourse? Jesus prophesied to his disciples that they would be persecuted for his sake, and he also said that the world will hate you. So Jesus obviously is not calling for a revolution, an overthrow of society, so any interpretation of his words there cannot be read to mean that. If we're going to harmonize them with him saying that his few followers are going to be persecuted by the world. Another observation. Just as we understand from the feast statement above, Jesus wasn't making an absolute statement to everyone. He meant if necessary and if called to do so. So Jesus wasn't saying even if the words woodenly, literally, without context seem to be saying that you have to give away everything you have to be his disciple. That's not what he was saying. He said forsake all. And what he means by that is the willingness to do so. 
did the centurion where he healed his servant give up everything he had for Jesus to regard him? No. Jesus mentioned the faith that this man had because he told Jesus, just speak the word and I know and my servant will be healed. And Jesus told him to go back to his house and he will see that his servant is healed. And Jesus marveled at this Roman centurion's faith. But what did Jesus tell him to do? Go back to your house. Jesus didn't tell him, give up everything that you have. Not everyone was required to give up everything they had. So what's the principle that Jesus is saying? If push comes to shove, if you had to make the choice between giving up everything you have, such as under persecution, right? Under threat of persecution, to align with Jesus and be his disciple, then you have to do that. Jesus never demanded that his friends Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus forsake each other and give up their house because Jesus also said, unless someone hates his family, he cannot be a disciple. And of course, by that, he just meant love them less. It meant that they have to love Jesus more, such that if they were to get in the way, you would have to separate yourself. He never demanded that all his friends and all his disciples actually materially had to give up everything they had. He's only uttering the principle that if it came down to it, you must give up everything you have. Otherwise, you have to be willing to do so to be his disciple. So this is not a prescription for everyone in society such that no one really owns anything and we abolish property rights. To make that claim is seriously to take Luke 14.33 out of context. Now this is the same chapter and setting in which Jesus, a few verses before, talked about counting costs. So Luke 14 verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, how do we even know how much something costs unless we have a marketplace of property ownership and buying and selling to be able to figure that kind of thing out? Is everyone able to build a tower? How does anyone have the resources to buy all the materials to build a tower unless they have wealth? But Jesus is giving that illustration about counting the cost to build a tower and having enough to finish it with also being his disciple. So why does his illustration about being his disciple involve really the concepts of market forces and buying and selling and private property ownership and being stewards of that? And we talked about the next chapter, where this is going through Luke 14, but the next chapter, Luke 15, has the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And we talked about those in episode 7 of the series. These all demonstrate the non-socialist principles of property ownership, stewardship of property, and even inheritance. 
which socialists don't really like. Those who really hold hard to the ideology of socialism don't like property ownership and the ability to be evaluated based on your stewardship of property or that a father can give his son inheritance. And of course, that's also where Jesus mentions sinners repenting. So, to conclude all this is Luke 14, verse 33, prescribing a socialist society in which no one owns anything because everyone has to give up all their wealth? No. Does Jesus' admonition to the host to put on feasts for the poor and maimed disadvantaged demonstrate that wealthy people cannot ever even have a private birthday party or any kind of feast for any purpose? No, it's a not only but also statement. And what was the context? Gentiles would also come in for salvation. And what does salvation involve? Repentance and faith. It involves recognizing such a thing as sin, and sin isn't just what someone in power does to someone who doesn't have as much power. And so we see that socialist proof texts in Luke chapter 14 are not because Luke chapter 14 and what Jesus said in there directly and in context do not teach socialism. And so I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Truth Espresso and answering the question, was Jesus a socialist? Part nine. And so stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso and God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.